going to be talking some more about getting free from shame. Looking forward to the things that I have to share. Had a wonderful and amazing conversation with Vanessa R. Brooks on Thursday on religious trauma. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, it's a live video. Um, it's on my page. It's on Vanessa's page if you're friends with her. I'd highly recommend that you do it. I miss everybody. I miss seeing everybody. Um, but it's been a good time uh, for me to uh, reflect and reimagine. Um, and so I definitely can see how God has used this season for me and for the Awakening Center locally and as well as what we're doing globally to uh, really sharpen my idea of what uh, it's going to look like and what it needs to be going forward. And that conversation that I had with Vanessa on Thursday has really impacted me. I was blown away. When I got off Thursday night, there was 858 views. Um, I, I don't even remember how many shares, hundreds of comments. And since that time, uh, I think it's getting up around 17 or 1,800 views. Um, and, P, and, it, and it keeps increasing. Uh, so it's not like people, you know, people are still watching it. And I have my inbox has been flooded. I did a couple of surveys that you guys, many of you participated in, just uh, basic ones on my Facebook page about how has religion been traumatic to you. And there were so many ladies that were uh, commenting. And I know that uh, religion can be very damaging, especially to women and especially to ladies. And... So I put another post up and said, if you're a, if you're a woman, I want to hear specifically from you. How has uh, your religion been traumatizing to you? And I was blown away by the comments uh, because I and, and and here's what I began to realize: uh, we have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem in the Christian church with shaming and shame that runs deeper than we have ever been willing to look at. And we, meaning me. So let me just take that off and let me put them on myself. Um, it's far more toxic. Some of the things about it is far more toxic than, than what I realized. Because it's not just the behavior. See, here's what we do usually. We, we try to separate. When someone has a traumatic experience in the church, we try to separate. We try to do this, this um breaking down into a more refined category in order to cognitively deal with what we're experiencing. Because we present ourselves as Christians, or Christianity presents itself to the world as the answer. We present ourselves as the representatives of God. We present ourselves as representing the God who said in the scriptures that he is love, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, now, there's a condition upon your salvation that you have to believe in him, but never mind that. That still communicates that message of love. And in, in America, you know, I think as Christians, we believe that we have somehow cornered the market. We're on the side of light. Uh, and so we have this image, right, that we put out there. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're the ones that have the golden rule. Um, it's woven into the fabric of American culture. And we put ourselves out there like that. And then there's things like the Catholic sex scandal. But the only reason the Catholic sex scandal is so exposed is because it's such a 
organization, meaning it's organized. Something that's organized is easier in many ways to fight or easier in many ways to expose. But I got to tell you, the sexual abuse that has gone on in the charismatic evangelical world, and I'm not just talking about leaders, elders, pastors, raping or molesting people, children, men, women, boys. That certainly goes on. But there's another level of this sexual abuse that I would call sexual shaming, where we have shamed the human sex drive in general in its various manifestations. And the church has shamed women in particular. So there's that aspect of what happens that traumatizes people. Other people have bad experiences. Somebody wrote on my page about uh, losing, uh, well, several people, losing a loved one, losing a child, losing a, a, a spouse, and being shamed by their faith, their faith community because in one case I think they didn't have enough faith. In another case, they didn't pray hard enough. In another case, it was insinuated this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't had, had sin in their lives. So there was this whole level of shaming that happened from the pulpit. We can look at that and we can say churches aren't perfect. People aren't perfect. Christians aren't perfect. They're only forgiven. Separate out somehow your faith in God from your faith in people so that we say, it's just the people that aren't really following Jesus that are the problem. It's just the people that don't really know God or are acting outside of, or as one pastor friend that I have says, they're acting independently of God. They're not walking in the Spirit, so they're not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And that's how we negotiate. So on the one hand, you have broken humanity. On the other hand, you have uh, exalted, perfect divinity. And Christianity is the pathway of knowledge or salvation whereby you can find the divine. And then we promise things other like healing, wholeness, life. And yet, most of us have been traumatized through our experience at some level or another, have been traumatized through our experience in the Christian faith. And so life's not perfect. We get traumatized in relationships. Um, and by trauma, I just mean hurt, wounding, pain. There's various different levels and categories of trauma, and it's not my purpose to talk about that today. Psychological suffering. It happens in anything in life. It can happen on your job. Uh, you can fired from your job, be traumatized. We don't blame the institution <laughs> that fired you for the problem. You, you see what I'm saying? But something became very, very clear to me, and it's, it's been becoming clear, clearer, but, man, it's like I got a bucket of cold water in the face this week after talking about religious trauma and seeing the response on my page. And I had already kind of started thinking about shame and what shame is. And I began to realize something, that the problem that we have that we are not willing to address is that the system itself is traumatizing. The doctrines themselves, in many cases, are shame-inducing. 
so that the shame of the Christian world is not only shame that comes from people who shamed us when we were part of their churches, like the examples that I gave, but the shame is systemic. It is it is in the system itself. It is in the teachings themselves. And until we realize that, and until we really come to terms with that, I don't think we are going to be able to heal ourselves. And I certainly don't think we're going to be able to offer any kind of a river of healing to other people. Now, I want to define some things. When I say something's systemic, I want to help you understand that because obviously there's a lot on the radar right now in America, on most people's minds, about racism. And there's a lot of talk about systemic racism. Now, I'm just using this for an example because I'm going to relate it back to the church in a minute. Now, whether or not you agree that there is systemic racism in America is not my issue right now. My issue is whether or not you understand what people are talking about when they are talking about systemic racism. Because I don't think we do. I don't think that the the people of color that I have talked to that really think on this issue are not primarily out there saying white people in general are racist. In fact, a lot of them have told me, I haven't met very many truly racist white people. Now, you can go on Twitter and go on the Internet, go on YouTube and find ample examples of white racist people. (laughs) So I'm not denying that reality either. I'm just trying to say that this people that I'm talking about, when they're talking about systemic racism, they're not talking about individual white people being racist. They are talking about a system that was founded and built to give advantages, particularly economic advantages, to a ethnic group of people. Now, whether or not you agree with that is not the issue. I just want you to understand what they're talking about. So, in that example then, a system can be founded which this is undeniable. I mean, if you're going to deny this, you're just, you just aren't in touch with reality. At least aspects, we can argue that at least aspects of the American society was founded with, with, uh, slavery, black slavery, and annihilation of a land grab from native peoples, all set up to the advantage of white Europeans. So the system was built to the advantage of white Europeans. The system itself. That does not change over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, even though our thinking and our feeling and our understanding about racial and ethnic issues might be completely transformed. I think completely differently about race than my ancestors um, 
three, four generations ago. You know, three, four generations ago, they were in the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, right? I find that organization abhorrent today. They were members of a good Christian organization. So I don't think or feel about black people or people of color anywhere close to the way that my ancestors did. So in that sense, I am not a racist. But that does not mean that the system that I inherited was not built upon racist principles. You see the difference? So when somebody says systemic racism, they're not saying white people, every white person is racist. They're saying the system was built to the advantage of white Europeans. And because that system has not uh, reformed or transformed or evolved enough, even though maybe the people have, the system itself hasn't evolved enough. So therefore, it needs to be examined. But when we start examining it, too many white people get defensive and start putting their opinions out there before they even take time to listen and understand and hear what the other side is saying. So the pathway forward for healing, gang, it, just like anything else, the pathway forward for healing is going to require a lot of humility. It's going to require a lot of, of willingness to understand before you speak uh, and all that stuff. Now, let's take that and let's apply this to Christianity because what we try to do is we try to, in our atten- intention, we try to preserve our belief and our doctrines and our Bibles as completely untainted, as not the problem at all. It's just the people that that represent or misrepresent the teachings that are the problem. So we say things like, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. We say things like, I'm not religious, I am spiritual. But our problem becomes that that it, it can become a false category because what I want to suggest to you is that much of the shaming and damage and trauma that has gone on in people's lives is systemic to the Christian faith, not just the churches. That's why you see it in every church. It's systemic to the Christian faith itself. Let me give you some examples. Um, The overemphasis on sin as though it is God's primary concern and primary problem. The primary problem for all Christian evangelicals and most Protestants and virtually all Catholics is that God needed to save us from our sins and needed to save us from being inherently sinful and inherently opposed to God. And he, and so he has this problem that he needs to figure out how to fix. And the only way he can fix it is for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Now, think about this. For Jesus to die a horrible, a horrible, horrific death. So here's the, here's, think about the archetypes here. We're taking the Son of God. We're taking the person who's perfect, the person who's never done anything wrong. And God is hanging him on a cross, which is the cruelest, most inhumane, form of torture and death that perhaps humanity has ever come up with. It's where we get the term excruciating to excruciate for, for something to be excruciating X being out of cruce being the cross excruciating pain is out of the cross. So this God had to 
die or kill his son with the most excruciating form of torture, that's trauma. That's traumatic. The most excruciating form of torture so that God could save you because you're so rotten to the core. Now, that is the absolute core and foundation of the Christian faith. And it, and, and people have been so fear-induced, so afraid if they look at that, so afraid if they question that, that God is going to be disappointed or God is going to reject them or they're somehow not going to be saved. Hear the shame. Shaming, shaming, shaming. Trauma, trauma, trauma. And that's that's the crux of it. And so we try, and it doesn't matter how you interpret it. You can interpret it from a penal substitutionary atonement view that God had to kill his son in order to be righteous and just and loving at the same time. Or you can interpret it from a Christus Victor point of view that God had to kill his son in order to set you free from the powers of darkness, from the devil and from death. Uh, oh yeah, and from sin. Sin is always mentioned. And sin is the human problem. And so... The entire message is, the foundation of the entire message of the entire system is that you and I are defective. That you and I were created inherently defective or we became defective. But regardless, we are so defective that our creator had to crucify his son to address the problem and to deal with it. And now watch this. You cannot be saved. You and I cannot be saved until we believe that. So until we internalize it, watch this. Until we, I got to slow down. Think about all those shame-inducing messages. Think about the shame-inducing power of the crucifix in a Catholic church. Or a cross that reminds me. I mean, think about the old hymns that we used to love to sing. You know, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So, but, okay, so that could be a message out there. But I'm told the only way the death of God's Son can benefit me is if I believe it or if I internalize it. (laughs) Which means I have to take the shame that exists out there in the message that I'm defective, that I'm born wrong, that I'm born broken, that my Creator can't have anything necessarily to do just with me, that He had to crucify His Son for me, and I have to internalize it and make it part of my psyche. I have to invite Jesus into my heart. I have to believe that in my heart. I have to internalize it and make it part of my psyche. And the moment I do that, then I have created a spiritual toxic identity, even if I say, yes, but thank God I was cleansed. Yes, but thank God I'm, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Yes, but thank God you know, I'm, I'm in Christ. That's just the beginning of it. Now, you all know, there's always more to do. <laughs> Even people that say, just believe it and you're good. Okay, good. Why don't we just tell people then, just believe it and go live your life? We tell them the exact opposite. No, oh, no, no, no. Just because you believe it, you can't just go out and do whatever you want. You, you, something has to change or transform. you get, you got to be sanctified. you got to, you know, whatever. What if the truth, and, and, and so, so what happens is, 
we can't heal from religious shame because we won't really, we don't want to. This is my belief at this moment. I'm, I'm processing with you guys. So, you know, I may be saying something that's sounding far more authoritative than it probably should because I'm processing with you guys. But we, 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 we take something. Ah, I kind of, I kind of lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens. <laughs> So we end up being intellectually dishonest in our approach. Oh, yeah, and I remember what I was going to say. Until we can actually admit it, gang, until we can actually admit all the pain that the system itself has caused, until we can actually admit that some of the core of the problem is not just in the people who preach it, but in the preaching itself, not just in the messengers, but in the message itself, until we can come to see that that is like a virus, what is causing a lot of the psychological and emotional and mental damage and sociological damage and cultural damage that's going on in people's lives, then I don't believe that we can fully heal ourselves or that we can be a healing presence to the world. Now, I know this is pretty strong and maybe some people are going to struggle with it. Uh, and I understand that, and I, and I want to be sensitive to that. So coming back to the concept of shame, shame is different than guilt. Guilt can be a positive emotion. Guilt can actually be a positive emotion because it can help you live justly or in a loving way, if you want to say it, towards the people in your life, and it can keep your relationship strong. So if I do something that I damage another person by what I say uh, or what I do and I feel guilty about it and it's true guilt and it's appropriate guilt then that guilt can signal to me I did something wrong there I want to amend my behavior I want to fix what I did so you can think about what you did as I made a mess my kids make a mess all the time and guilt can be sort of that parental voice that says, hey, you spilled the milk, go wipe it up. You got this stuff out, go put it away. It's all external. It's, it's all happening out here. There is no identity statement. There's no identifying with it at all. Uh, you made a mess, go clean it up. It's not you are such a mess and you can't help but make messes because being a mess is what you are. That's what the Christian church tells everybody. That's the message of original sin. And the really sad thing, gang, like if, if, if that was originally what Jesus taught, or if it could really hold up even to biblical scrutiny, that'd be, that'd be one thing. The sad thing is, when you study the history of it, and if anybody wants resources to do that, I'm happy to point you in that direction. It's not even in the text. Maybe with St. Paul in Romans 5? Maybe. But that's, that's one page. First Corinthians 15, that's one or two pages in the book. The rest of the book does not support it. But we put it out there. <laughs> and so that's the problem that God's trying to resolve. So shame has to do with your identity. Shame has to do with your sense of being. Shame has to do with this idea that I am wrong or I am bad or I don't measure up or I need to be better. 
And in the case of Christianity, like, like, so here's, here's the other thing with shame. Somebody that doesn't grow up with religious trauma or religious shame, they make mistakes. They get embarrassed. They feel societal shame. Shame is tied to society. How am I being viewed by society? How am I being viewed by my peers? Uh, how am I being viewed in my family? So there can be familial shame where you're just, you're the black sheep of the family. You're the wayward sister, whatever. You are the, the rebellious, whatever, rebellious twin, whatever you are. Um, so that's within family and human relationships. But religious shame tells you not only are you bad, but you are condemned by God. You are condemned by your creator. Now, the more you believe that message, so we're going to have an evangelistic rally. You can set this up completely psychologically. has nothing at whatsoever to do with the power of the Spirit. If you can get people to actually believe that God is going to send them to hell, that is perhaps one of the greatest psychologically traumatizing events that can happen in a person's life. Think about it. If somebody says they're going to kill you, threatens your life, your physical life, that can create trauma. Somebody says they're going to kill your essence or rather keep your essence alive and eternally, consciously torment you. And you're hearing that as a child. You're hearing that as a teenager at revivals and church camps before you have a fully formed frontal lobe, before you even have the ability to critically think. That stuff's getting inside of us, gang. And that's trauma. And so if I can hold a revival meeting and I can get people who don't believe like me, who don't believe in Jesus to believe that this God, this creator is angry with them, and is going to torture them with eternal conscious torment for all eternity, like Jonathan Edwards did. And I can paint a picture with my words, like Jonathan Edwards did in The Great Awakening. Then the mind is going to see that as a movie. You're going to feel that. And of course you're going to wail over your sins. Of course you're going to weep. Of course you're going to be drawn to the altar, not because there's any convicting of the Holy Spirit, not because God has anything to do with this, not because real God or true God or genuine God or source or the Creator has anything to do with this whatsoever, only because you psychologically came to believe that that was the case. And once you believed that that was the case, you will experience it to one degree or another as real. And when you experience it as real, your fight, flight, or freeze response is going to respond and kick in. You're going to feel the stress. You're going to feel the fear. And then it's reinforced from the book itself, from the doctrines itself, about the fear of the Lord. And so you become divided inside. You become afraid inside. You become afraid to think outside the box. You become afraid of anybody like me that might be saying, maybe we need to rethink the entire system. Maybe we need to rethink the entire faith. Maybe we've all been traumatized. Maybe all of us that have been in churches, everybody that's been part of my church, anybody that's ever listened to me <laughs> preach, uh, at least prior to the last, you know, decade at least, 
maybe even during that time, maybe even last week. I don't know. I'm just saying that we've all been traumatized by this. We've all been shamed by this. And so we take on these shame-based messages and, the, and it causes second guessing. It causes, it, 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 it puts us in a place. It really does put us in bondage. Puts us in bondage in so many ways. And then the way it becomes reinforced, it becomes a habit of thinking that you are wrong. And so if your mental frame becomes, I am wrong, it will become your filter through which you see experience. So when you, when you experience, uh, problems in a relationship, it's easy for you to look at where you were wrong in the relationship and maybe harder to see where the other person was wrong. Or you can have a reaction to that the other way where you feel so bad about yourself, you, you, you can't deal with any more feelings of shame. So it can't be my fault. It's got to be the other person's fault. And you project all the blame on them and you play. And, and it, so the relationship, the whole relationship becomes structured as a blame game. Blame is the foundation of it, not love. Well, I got to tell you something. Blame is the foundation of the gospel in America. Blame is, and, and it's not, and it's from the Bible. It's from the book. You can't just say, well, it needs to be reinterpreted and, and, and all this other stuff. No, it's in the book. <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's still, it's conditional on who believes. So it's still not unconditional love. There is not any unconditional love that I can find in the Bible anywhere. Maybe one or two or three passages. Maybe Psalm 103 where it says God has not treated us as our sins uh, deserve, that He that he's merciful to us and, and all that stuff. But even that is focused on, oh, see, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the love of God. And heaven forbid you start telling people that you deserve it. Heaven forbid you tell people that you're okay, that you're okay being a human being, that you're okay, uh, that your life is okay, and you didn't go to church and you didn't pay your tithe and you haven't been praying and you don't believe in Jesus Christ. Heaven forbid. I mean, it's like there's a whole group of people out there that think that, that morality hinges upon the Bible. When I'm telling you right now, I, look at, go look at my threads. Go look at the horrible things that people have done to people in the name of Jesus. Go look at the horrible things that people have done to people in the name of Christ and then who all say the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and tell me the Bible is what's causing them uh, to, to live right. When I know atheists and I know Hindus and I know Buddhists, uh, I don't think I know any Muslims, um, which is unfortunate. I need to get to know some. Uh, who, who live better lives, atheists, let's say, take it out of the context of religion, who live better lives than people who hang on to the book. <laughs> so something's wrong. Something's wrong. I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place because I just have a, a million different thoughts. I mean, th this week has just been really radical for me. And one of the things that I did this week was I got more in touch with my own trauma. And I began to think back on my own experiences and, and some of the things that were really, really painful. And I'm not talking about things that other people did to me. I'm talking about the beliefs that I internalized that were really painful, that were really self-limiting, that did not bring healing and did not bring empowerment. One of the people that's really influenced my life is um, Chang Bhakti. Um, if you go to my YouTube channel, The Awakened Person, Type in my name in the awakened person and go to my YouTube channel and you'll find a spiritual conversation with Chang Bhakti. See, Chang comes from an Eastern perspective. Um, but she believes in one God. And the way she talks about God will make you salivate. Because 
she doesn't, she's not infected with the shame-inducing messages of Western Christianity that you're wrong, that you're evil, that you need to be saved from your sins, that Jesus had to die, that God's son had to die this horrible death in order for God to be okay with you. They don't have those frames. And so they don't have this Western juridical view of God that comes from our Bibles. They don't have Yahweh who was committing genocide in the Bible uh, or humanicide in the third story in the Bible when he wipes out all of humanity and all of the animals because he had changed his mind, decided it wasn't a good idea that he created us to begin with. I mean, think about that. That's one of the early, earliest messages that you get. And we buy children little Noah's Arks, you know, things, and we put Noah's Ark pictures in their bedrooms and whatever, and we we buy them little Noah's Ark cartoons, and Noah and his nice family, and all the animals, and isn't this a wonderful story? Except the foundation of it is God was so sorry that He made you, as that He made humanity in general, that He wiped everybody out but eight people, and and that comes in early gang that comes in so early and it's such a horrific message it's such a horrific message but we make it so sweet and so cute and we introduce it so young that it's i don't want to be too strong i don't want to be overzealous because i'm dealing with my own stuff (laughs) i feel like i'm just rambling um I guess what I want to say is, you know, it's, it's been great hearing from you guys. It's hearing from you guys on Facebook that have, you know, been willing to openly share your story about the trauma that you've experienced. And I just want to invite us to realize that the core of a lot of what happens or gets developed or formed in us through religious trauma is shame. I could not believe, and I don't know why. Well, I do know why, because I'm a man, but I felt a little dense, like most men, right, ladies? When I was reading how women had to think about their gender identity in the Christian church, um, repeated stories of young girls, young girls being told that they couldn't wear, they needed to be careful to make sure their shirt was buttoned up, that they didn't show any cleavage. Or they would be a sexual temptation to the men. Every Sunday having to raise my arms, somebody put, every Sunday having to raise my arms to make sure that none of my midriff shows. Um, I know one person, you know, told me they would try on three or four dresses or skirts before they would go to church and they had their, their, their church clothes. And we're not talking about just I dress up on Sunday. They had their church clothes that they made sure were modest enough. And I thought, what, what is it? What are we doing when we tell a 11, 12, 13 year old girl that's just developing? It's feeling awkward and uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I'm just, I'm guessing, ladies. I shouldn't be talking about this. I should let a lady talk about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. So please understand my heart. You know, I, I would imagine there's awkwardness in that developmental stage when you're first getting breasts and whatever else. And you're going to meet with God, the God that created you. 
and you're being told, make sure you don't show too much of your body, because, uh, what? It's sinful? God's going to be upset? God doesn't want to see too much cleavage? Or your kneecap? Because <laughs> your shirt, your skirt's too short? Um, or is it, we don't want to put temptation in front of the men in the church. Yeah, but you're 11, you're 12, you're 13. How can that not send a message that the church is full of pedophiles? <laughs> and maybe in some cases it was. But what, how do you internalize those messages, ladies? How do you, how do you take that on? You know what I mean? So then, like, somebody said, one of the ladies said, it's like, or several of the ladies said, it's like we exist strictly for the male. And, you know, there's ways to interpret what St. Paul said about women teaching, women keeping silent in the church, that modernizes it, that updates it. I've done a lot of it. But in, at the end of the day, guys, we're trying to live our life by a book that was written to a culture where women were property. No different than donkeys and horses. No different. Where women existed in the patriarchal age... Um, for the purpose of male advantage and male gratification. And we want to be beholden to it today. And we want to hold it up as God's example for marriages and families. I'm going to come back and do a message. I can't wait to do it. I did it once and I didn't have the guts to post it. Uh, the biblical view of marriage. But we look at uh, we don't look at Adam and Eve. We look at uh, Jacob and his wives and the whole mess with Leah and Rachel and his concubines and the drug deals that go on in the Bible and the prostitution that goes on that gives birth, and God's so blessed by it that it gives birth to uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, anyway. <laughs> You see, so the spirit of that stuff, it's, it's in the book. The energy of that stuff, it's in the book. So how in the hell can you not, uh, how, how, how can it not be demeaning, the, the thing in and of itself, how can it not be demeaning to women, uh, demeaning to your sex drive, demeaning to your bodies, and basically just saying that you exist for men because, because of a patriarchal age. And... Um, Man, I, I just think about the shame, shaming messages. So what happens, though, is then it constricts yourself. It constricts yourself. It constricts your expression. It makes you constantly second-guess yourself. Um, if, if you're told your heart is evil and wicked above all, whatever, and needs to be changed and transformed, you can't trust the messages that are coming from your heart. So I think one of the biggest fruits of religion is this constant second-guessing. 
because the other thing that we've done, I'll just throw this out and then I'll get on a positive side of something, but I'm trying to diagnose the problem. The other thing that we've done is we've put a moral hierarchy on the range of human experience, particularly human emotional and psychological experience. So that certain feelings are good, the fruit of the spirit, and other feelings are bad. You shouldn't have those. Lust, anger, jealousy, heck, even being sad and grief, because one of the fruit of the spirit is joy, right? So love, joy, peace. These are the moral, these are the okay ranges of emotion. These are the holy ranges, the Holy Spirit giving you the fruit of the spirit. These are the ones that are holy. These are the ones that are sacred. But depression, fear, anger, lust, jealousy, <laughs> gluttony, uh, these, these are all not okay. And so we, we, we're not allowed to explore the full range of our interior landscape or the full range of the human experience without shaming. Because these feelings are okay, these feelings aren't. So a person can be depressed and because they don't have the joy of the Lord, you heap shame on top of the depression. A person can be afraid because of whatever reason and you're heaping shame on top of the fear because God is not giving you a spirit of fear but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Perfect love casts out fear. Next time I hear that, I want to vomit. <laughs> yeah, I know John said it. And I know it's this ideal, but there, not one single one of you, I challenge every single person, every single one of you, l listen, I'm going to put a challenge out there. Those of you that like to quote, perfect love casts out fear to people who tell you they're afraid, I want you to contact me and I want you to explain to me and show me and demonstrate for me that you've been perfected in love and that you don't experience fear. Because until you've actually experienced that, where you have no fear at all, any day of the week, then maybe you're putting out a false expectation. Maybe there isn't in this human experience this place where we just feel perfectly loved all the time and don't have any fears. And the reason I'm bringing this out, guys, is because that's what causes us to second guess. That's what causes us to draw back. It constricts our self and our self-expression, particularly our authentic self-expression. And so what can happen? And so, so what happens then if we are able to somehow break the habit of shaming ourselves? What happens if we're able to heal from those experiences that we've had? What happens if we're able to completely release and reject once and for all every shame inducing message that has been told to us in our life or that we've told ourselves so that we really do come to a place where we are shame free because shame, listen, and I'm not contradicting myself because shame was, should not be part of the normal human experience. Do we all deal with shame? Yes. But do we all, does every human being create an identity out of shame? No. So I am differentiating between the feeling of guilt and the feeling of shame, which we will all experience, and an identity that is shame-based, an identity, a sense of self that is constricted and wrapped up in shame, where you tell yourself repeatedly, I am bad, I am wrong, what's wrong with me, I don't measure up, oh, i got to dress a certain way before I go to church, or God's going to get an erection. 
Um, I'm sorry. I, I just I gotta put it out there like that. I mean, what are we telling these these young girls when we're saying, look, don't let your midriff show when you go to church. Don't let a shoulder show. Don't let your kneecap show. What what are we telling them? Before you go to church, and we go to church to meet with God, so somehow your body's wrong because it, because your body, it, we sexualize women in a way. I'm sorry. I just I was so impacted by what what people shared on, on my page, and and you know my eyes were open to so much of the stuff, and so all these shame inducing messages. Let's get back on what what could freedom look like? What could freedom look like for us? What could it look like if we weren't sitting there thinking I'm wrong? If we weren't sitting there thinking I'm bad? If we weren't sitting there thinking I'm worthless? Uh, if we weren't sitting there thinking I don't measure up? What what could happen for us? Um, what opportunities would you have taken advantage of if you weren't plagued by second guessing? What opportunities have you missed because you were plagued by self-doubt that was rooted in religious self-doubt that prevented you from putting yourself out there? How many opportunities to have fun and enjoy life did you miss because of the moralizing of religion that has nothing to do with ethics? Now, I believe in ethics. Ethics is treating people right, how we treat each other, um, you know, cause and effect, being aware that my actions have effect on others, my actions have effect on me now, and they have effect on me in the future. That's different than, I'm just going to go out and have a good time, but God says I can't. And God is always watching, and the rapture might happen. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Can you see how insane it is? Anybody else out there see how insane it is? And so... What if we could do that? I think we can do that. I think not every person lives in a shame-based identity. That, that we can find healing for ourselves. That we can break the habit of those that shame-based thinking and that shame-based identity. But it takes some deprogramming. It takes talking about some of this stuff. It takes sometimes using shocking language. Listen, I know people get a, you think that I just say stuff off the cuff or to be offensive. But there is, there's good data in, in therapy. And in the psychological world, that using shocking taboo language, that using taboo memes, if you will, can open the subconscious for healing and cleansing. It can break the power of a belief. So saying, why are we so worried about how women are dressing in church? What I said earlier about God, I know some of you were shocked by that, but that has a very powerful ability to help you see the idiocy of what was programmed into you, many of us, when we were children. Um, when I would talk about the Adam and Eve story and say, I don't believe that we started or that we got in this mess because two naked vegans talked to a snake. I'm purposely mocking that and putting that out there so that we can be shocked out of this religious thing to maybe begin to think differently. Because if the Adam and Eve story is where a lot of this shaming of sexuality and shaming of humanity came from in the first place. And what if at your core, what if at your core, you really are okay? What if at your core, you really are here to express a level of authenticity that is divine? What if at your core, you are divine? You have divinity 
You are the temple of the Spirit. You are the temple of the God that lives within you. You are the carrier of the divine spark that has been restricted by religious messages and cultural messages and shame-basing messages that have prevented you from giving expression to the fullness of what you came to express or to experience the fullness of what you came to experience. And what if we started to assign different values? What if we started to assign value to pleasure? What if we started to assign value to the good things in life? What if, what if, if it feels good, do it, really isn't bad advice? What if you could trust that thing inside of you if you got free from your psychological damage? Granted. That you could trust what comes from your core self, your authentic desires and your authentic feelings to lead you and guide you in an ethical lifestyle. What if that really works? What if that's really true? But regardless, shame is serving us no purpose. Shame is, is, is killing us, literally. It's killing our identity. It's killing us psychologically. It's killing us physically. And religious shaming is some of the worst shaming. But we cannot heal from it, number one, if we don't admit that it's there. And number two, we need people around us, guys. We need to have community. We need to realize, I'm realizing more and more, I cannot heal this stuff by myself. I cannot heal all the damage that has been done to me and all the damaging messages by just trying to deal with it by myself in meditation and prayer. I need people around me that, that, that I can think with. I need people around me that I can process with. I need people around me that are going to love me anyway. <laughs> I need people around me that are going to overlook uh, sometimes the emotional disruptions or I'm sorry, the emotional eruptions that can happen when you're like, dang, you know, when you're processing and you're working through that. And is it possible, is it possible for us to have some kind of community that's not built on judgment? Because every religious community is built on the foundation of judgment. Shame holds racism in place. Yeah, that's a conversation to have. I just saw that, Daryl. Uh, I agree completely. I think some of the defensiveness of people about what's going on is because of shame. And anyway, there's a lot of we could talk about there. But what if we could think about a different way to live that wasn't based upon judgment, where we're not judging people for their spiritual path. We're not judging people for who they are. We're not judging people for how they dress. We're not judging people for the mistakes that they made. We're not defining people's lives based on one or two or three mistakes that they make. Not allowing our humanity to be so vilified. I mean, think about it. The Bible says that your righteous deeds, your good deeds, are like filthy rags in the sight of God. That's in your Bible. Who wants that? What if that's not even true? What if you stop feeling like you even have to defend that? And what if we could build our lives off of non-judgment? So the way out is here. The way out is here. And then I want to give you a message of hope. The way out is here. The foundation to all psychological healing, at least for me, has been when I remember to stop judging. To stop judging. Primarily to stop judging myself. If I make a mistake, to have compassion with myself, to not judge it. If I don't know something, 
be okay with that and not judge myself as stupid or dumb. If I can't do something, not judge myself as worthless or somehow not measuring up. If someone else gets a promotion, a benefit in life that I myself don't have, I can look at that person with their benefits and not have it reflect back on me and judge myself and say, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not there? Um, to just suspend that idea <clears throat> that there's something wrong, that there's something inherently wrong, and let go of this whole thing of judging. And it's so hard to find healing, right? Because the judgment thing is so intrinsically in us, and yet I do think we need one another to heal. You get hurt in community, you can be healed in community. But how do we take that chance? Because we're all judgmental at times, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of messy. But I think it can be done. I think there's ways that we can create community. We can create frames and belief frames. One of the things that I'm trying to do with the live and with the teaching is to break the brainwashing. And that's why I'm so provocative in some of the stuff that I do and some of the stuff that I say. Please understand, guys, when I'm putting provocative stuff on Facebook, I am not always doing that because I'm frustrated or angry or bitter at religion. I'm doing that because I want to help people find healing and freedom. And I realize that being provocative is a really powerful way to jar people out of their normal stream of consciousness to get them to begin to think differently, to plant seeds. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So there's the deprogramming process where we have to get this stuff out of us. We have to be aware of the stories that we're telling ourselves and just stop it. Just, just quit it. Just, um, just observe how you're judging yourself in all these situations and be compassionate and just say, Oh, I'm judging again. I'm judging myself again. Okay. I see that. I'm not going to judge it. Once you do that, the, a lot of the power of shame is broken right there. So that's kind of a practical thing that we can do. But don't be afraid to talk about this stuff. Don't be afraid to talk about your hurts. Don't be afraid to be authentic. Don't be afraid to, to share yourself. And if you get judged, don't revert back to the old patterns. Because if you can put yourself out there and be judged by someone else and still be okay... Then you've done some healing. Then you've done some growing. See, my fear, I don't want to put myself out there because I want to be judged, belies the fact that I haven't healed. Because if I get judged, I'm going to feel that pain again and I'm going to retreat. But if I can put myself out there and get judged and overlook that and still feel okay, then I know that I've really made some progress and I've really gotten some healing. Now, I want to come back to something. Um... And I think this is really, really important because I think it'll help, help us understand. When the writers of the New Testament are putting together the New Testament, there is a change in the age because of the procession of the equinox. We were moving through the procession of the equinox from the age of Aries to the age of Pisces. And... The end of the age then, when you read that in the Bible, the end of the age was the end of the old era, 
the old period and was the beginning of a new age. Now, if you go all the way back, if you just step back and you look at humanity, what we know from its origins, whether you think it was two naked vegans in a garden talking to a snake, or whether that ate from a wrong tree, or whether you believe we came from apes, or whether you believe we were whatever you believe about how we got here. If you step back and you look at it, the hunter-gatherer cultures and the early sort of farming cultures were predominantly matriarchal goddess worshippers. Uh, nature itself was seen as the as the mother, and so any kind of nature worship was worshiping the divine feminine. So you have this long period of time where the divine feminine archetype is ruling spiritually and psychologically within humanity. So you have the age of the mother. As agriculture became more sophisticated and widespread, the entire structure of civilization transforms because now you have property. And somewhere in there, there was a shift to a patriarchal age. This whole idea of property is where patriarchs sort of come from. Because men being stronger physically were more able to take and protect property. Make sense? If you lived in a like hunter-gatherer time period, nobody property, the idea of property didn't didn't exist. But once you had land, you had property, so the man becomes uh, the protector. Uh, the man becomes the one who possesses. Watch this. The man becomes Lord. So in the God, in the goddess, in the nature religions, everything's more organic. There's more equality. There's more sharing. Nature's just providing for you. That's the goddess. The goddess provides the rain, that kind of stuff. When property, when agriculture comes in, now it's not hunter-gatherer. It's what I can do. It's how I can feed my family with crops. And in order to have crops, I need to have a place to store it. And, and, and I need to have uh, equipment to, to do the job, to work with. And I need to have sons to be part of the labor force. And I need to have wives to give me a bunch of sons. And my wives are also my property. And so the patriarch archetype rises up. Now watch this. So the man is the protector the man is the one that fights over land. Watch this. The man is the one that fights over land. And the man becomes the possessor, which is what actually the word Lord means. So now you have the patriarchal age where the divine feminine is completely subverted and completely repressed. And the Bible now says in places, God says, I'm the one who gives you the fruit of your vines. <laughs> 
He says, quit worshipping these these pagan gods. Well, what pagan god were they worshipping? They were worshipping Asherah. So in, in, the, in the prophets, God is saying, quit worshipping the divine feminine because I'm actually the one that's giving this to you. It's a complete subversion of the divine feminine for the exaltation of the divine masculine. So you're going into a different polarity. You're going from the polarity of the divine feminine to the polarity of the divine masculine. Right? You see it? But we are, I am convinced, we are at the beginning of the shifting of an entirely new age, not just because of the procession of the equinox. There was there was a, a guy that, 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 that prophesied this back in the early 1900s, he said, he said that humanity in its development and the progression of its consciousness had to go through the age of the mother, the age of the father, and that now we are moving into the age of the son, but the son is a child. What is the age of the son? The son is when the polarities, the father, the mother polarity and the father polarity merge together and through that union become something else where there is equality and balance. So here's what I want to tell you, gang. Jesus Christ said this. Jesus Christ at the age of Pisces, he said to, he, he said to his fishers of men, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the Age, not the end of the world, even to the end of the age. So then he also says, when he's getting ready to go to the cross to celebrate Passover, where can we celebrate Passover? He says, he tells two disciples, go into the city and follow the man carrying the water pitcher and follow him into the upper room. There, all things will be made ready. Now, in that culture, men didn't carry water. Men did not carry water. That was their possessions, their wives, their women. That was women's work. What he literally says there in the text is, watch Aquarius, because Aquarius in the sky is the man with the water pitcher in the hand. So in other words, what he's saying to the fishermen (laughs) is you need to follow, you need to stay on this path, you need to stay with me, until all things have been prepared. And how will you know all things have been prepared when you see the man with the water pitcher in the hand in in, 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 in the house, which is also an astrological term, uh, ascend, and then the table is set and all things are made ready for what? For the age of the sun, for the age of the blending and the coming together and the marrying of polarities for the birthing of something absolutely new. But you cannot have the synthesis of polarities if you have these extreme dualisms of more polarities and you cannot you see what I'm saying? We're stuck in a polarity of these are the good emotions these are the bad emotions. We're living in an age where humanity is going to begin to take what seems like at polar opposites and be able to blend them and give birth into something new. We call it Christ consciousness. We can call it the divine spark. We can call it whatever. So what are we seeing? We're seeing voices out there that are that are voices of equality because this is the age of equality. So I'm sorry if you don't like it. Those of you that want to hold on to the old structures, you, you fine, but they're dying. They are dying. They are absolutely dying off. So you are going to see a greater push within the consciousness of humanity 
in this age of the sun for equality among races, for equality among genders, for equality among those that have different viewpoints, equality of religions. You're, you're seeing this all come together. Psychologically, you're seeing it come together out here. You're seeing people begin to champion for the voice of the, of the divine feminine to arise because the divine feminine in the church has been in complete exile. The divine feminine in the church for 2,000 years and in most of the world except for the East has been in exile. But she is coming out of her exile. She is coming out of her exile. Yes, it, that is the reason. That's why we're in this upheaval. That's why we're in this upheaval. That's why we're seeing in many ways, like it or not, and I know some of my white friends are going to disagree with me, but we are seeing a second civil rights thing that's happening but also watch this it's not it's not necessarily happening through the passivity of martin luther king jr and can i do all my white friends a favor please 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 for the love of god do not drag out martin luther king in any of your posts or conversations to try to prove your point instead of just listening to a person of color you have no idea how offensive that actually really is and that just needs to stop. I, I, okay, Aaron, calm down. But we try to promote this, you know, it's got to happen through passivity. But here's the other thing. that So this, this, this person prophesied in 1904 that we were coming into the age of the sun, uh, an age of the blending of polarities, an age of equality. He started prophesying all this. Now think about this. <clears throat> 1907. So slavery had just been abolished <clears throat> uh, a few decades before that. Um, women still didn't, the women's movement hadn't happened. The civil rights movement hadn't happened. The, you get it? And he says, this is the direction that we're going and there's going to be quality. And I think, I think there's a, a bigger momentum push. So all this stuff that's dividing us and, and it's coming down, it's coming down. That's the age in which we're living. So here's the exciting part. If we can have ears to hear and eyes to see, then we are actually living in a time period that is very much like the time period of Jesus and the disciples and, and others in terms of we have an opportunity for our voice to change the world. And here's another part of the age of the sun that I truly believe. I, I think this is the crux of it. This is the crux of it. And this goes back also something else that was prophesied. Here's the crux of it. That you have an authentic self. You have an authentic self. You, you are so loved, man. You are so loved. You are so supported. All that shame-inducing stuff is just crap. You are so loved. You are so supported in your path. And there is no right or wrong in that polarity sense because polarities are being being challenged and done away with. Um, so you don't have to worry about how many of us have not done something, not enjoyed something, not said something, not gone a direction, not taken a path because we wondered, oh, maybe it's the wrong thing. Maybe this isn't the will of God. And it keeps us spinning our wheels. It keeps us on, on, the, on, the, on the rabbit thing. What if God just loves you and supports you? What if there are no mistakes? What if there's only growth and lessons? What if you are so supported and so embraced and so loved and so one with everything and you're here to work through this balancing of the polarities in this season of, of maybe that's why we came at such a time as this, because we are involved as aspects of divine consciousness in, in the synthesis 
of polarities, taking a thesis and an antithesis and finding the synthesis and being able to move forward, balancing the divine masculine and the divine feminine, balancing the divine fem- or the, the feminine energies in us and the masculine energies within us, uh, doing away with, with class and race and ethnicity distinctions in the sense that it takes away from equal rights, not in the sense that it robs people of their ethnic authenticity. So that, and, and then beyond ethnic authenticity, what if we just allow to say, you know what, man, if you love to dance, dance. If you love to sing, sing. Who cares if it's, if it's not good enough? If you, if you want to be an entrepreneur, go out and be an entrepreneur. I mean, I don't know, but I think that, that what's supposed to happen is that, that, that we find our true essence, we find our true will, and it becomes liberated from this power of shame and particularly religious shame and this power of dualism, this power of moral dualism. And, and because of the movement towards equality, then people have the opportunity to give expression to themselves. Because ultimately, 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 Aquarius is the man with the water pitcher in his hand who is standing in the heavens and is pouring out the waters, what? To, to water all the flowers in the garden of heaven, to water all the stars. And so you are a star. You are a light. You are a, you are a unique flower. And there is an energy that God by, is, is injecting into the universe that is a sign in the heavens to us, that is pouring into you. And just like the ancients said, as above, so below, as within, so without, what's happening in the heavens is happening in you. What the energy's coming in, the energy's rising up, and man, it's a wonderful time to be alive. It's a painful time to be alive. And remember this, remember this, the same person who said this, who said the age of the mother is over, the age of the father is over, and we're living in the age of the son. He said the son is but a child. The son is but a child. Which means we're immature in it. Which means I'm going to say dumb stuff trying to be a voice because I'm a child. (laughs) And you're going to say dumb stuff and do dumb stuff because you're a child. And... What if it's okay to be dumb? You know what I mean. What if it's okay to be new at this and to be, you know. So anyway, I was all over the place, gang. I'm sorry. Um, I just, I've been thinking. So give me your feedback. I'm trying to think of ways. Listen, there's a bunch of people out there that are waking up. There's a bunch of people out there that are hurting from religious trauma. Um, There's... There's a bunch of people that want to leave it, but they're afraid to. And we need more voices out there. And we need we need to come up with ways to connect people. <clears throat> we need to come up with ways to create community. <clears throat> we need to think through how can we create non-judgmental relationships and non-judgmental in, uh, environments while at the same time <clears throat> fight for equality. Uh, so that's what I want to be about. That's what I think is happening. I, I don't. I, I think what what people think is happening is not what's happening in terms of <clears throat> conspiracies and whatever. I don't think that's what's going on at all. And anybody I know that's really in touch with ascension and the spirit, they don't believe that either. Um, I think this is what's happening. I think these are the birth pains. <clears throat> I think we needed something like the coronavirus, to bring this stuff to the surface. But I do believe in a better day. 
And I think we're all part of it. So let's join together um, and let's let our voices be heard. But more than that, let's 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 heal, gang. I want to heal from this stuff. I, I realized how much religious shame and religious trauma was still in me. And I just want to be honest about it. I want to be totally honest, totally transparent. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of living under it. I'm tired of living with the subconscious frames that are there. I want to heal from it. I know many of you want to heal from it. Um, let's help each other heal. Let's think about ways that we can help each other heal. And let's think about ways we can help those that are out there that are struggling, how we can help them heal and maybe help them understand that they're part of a new age. Um, and it's not the new age movement. It's, it's not, it, it runs so much deeper than just, it will not fail. But I'm going to tell you one thing I believe with all my heart. We cannot go back to the old. All right. I love you guys. I was on way too long. Um, I'm be doing some more stuff. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, love you guys. Hope you have a great, uh, rest of your afternoon. Thank you so much for spending time with me.